There is no doubt the world is facing daunting challenges these days. Look around. We have reached a critical point in human history. Old leadership models, beliefs, and behaviors are no longer working. Centuries of emasculation have brought us to the brink. Men need help, and who better to help us but the women? This is well. The Women's Expressions on Leadership, Learning, and Liberty podcast show, and I'm its host, John Krotek. My guests are accomplished and intelligent women who share not only their personal stories, but give us valuable insights and perspectives on the leadership challenges men face. In a world still dominated primarily by men, these honest perspectives can be a genuine catalyst for male leadership improvement. By exploring possibilities and opportunities for self-improvement and transformation, we offer men hope in an ever-changing, fast-paced, complex world. Thank you for listening and for your support. Lead on. (laughs) Super stoked for this next episode of The Well Podcast Show, Women's Expressions on Leadership, Learning, and Liberty. Uh, and I thank you for tuning in again and watching us for another episode. We have an exciting uh, person on today. I met her uh, Ooh, pre-COVID in Orlando <laughs> at the PodFest, you know, a couple of years ago already. And and her name is Heidi Hansen. And Heidi, uh, there's a lot to say about Heidi, but we're going to hear her story in a second. But let right. me let me say a little bit about Heidi and what she's up to. And And it's a lot of good stuff that she's working on. She comes from a long family tradition of patriotic values and military service. As a matter of fact, she was an early bloomer when she was 17. She enlisted in the U.S. Army when she was just a freshman in college. And she served simultaneously in the reserves and the ROTC until her her graduation, until she got commissioned. Uh, She graduated with a business uh, art degree, B.A. degree. B.A. Business associate. No, what do they call that? Bachelor of Arts. Bachelor uh, of Arts. Bachelor of Arts. I, I had a BS, Bachelor of Science. So, but it right. was business, so kind of interesting. But anyhow, in international affairs, her specialty was Soviet mm-hmm. politics. And um, yeah. I'm sure we might be able to get something good out of that. Uh, <laughs> she had also a minor in military science. Um, as an officer, she earned her jump wings at airborne school before serving the remainder of her active duty service overseas. So needless to say, 17 years old, going in early, jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. You know, there's something going on here. Um, Since she separated from the service, which was a little while ago, but not long, she's been she was a small business owner and an investor. She served as a humanitarian and an aid director in the in South Yucatan down in Mexico. Beautiful area down there. Cozumel. There's Merida. There's a bunch of interesting places in Yucatan jungle, Mm -hmm. too. Heidi herself says she is fiercely politically independent. Want to find out what that means. And served on the executive board of a renowned grassroots organization. She's extremely adept in the legislative process and trained many citizen lobbyists. That's a good thing. She owned and operated a firearms dealership. Yes. Very cool. I like that. (laughs) Specializing in self and home defense for women. For several years, she was a popular hard-hitting radio personality in Texas politics. And we all see what's going on out there. Texas is big. You don't mess with Texas. It's a whole country within itself. And uh, we're going to hear a little bit about that. 
She was honored to be elected to serve her community on the City Council of League City, Texas. Big Star right. Yeah, Lone Star State. Now she is, she says she's politically retired. Somehow I don't believe it. Um, she's a cross-country adventure motorcyclist. She just got back from Sturgis. I saw all of her stuff on social media. Uh, she's a freelance book narrator. She's got an awesome voice and she knows how to use it. <laughs> she remains active in veterans advocacy and volunteerism, serving those who have served us. And she is, above all, very proud to be a Blue Star mom. And you also notice the logo behind her. We're going to hear more about wheelchairs for warriors uh, in this conversation. So anyhow, without any further ado, and I know you're tired of listening to that, uh, but thank you, Heidi, for being here and welcome to the show. Thanks so much, John. Like I said to you before, it is so good to see you again. Yeah. Came, it's, it's like coming through a dark tunnel and there you are. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> you know, and we did. We met in Orlando at the Podfest. Right. You were there with your partner, Crystal Laramore, who was on the show earlier. And uh, we hit it off. And then you all went back to Texas and got your organization kicked up to a high speed. And then the bottom fell out with COVID. But we can get to that. Tell us about, sure. let's just get right to it. Tell us about the Hansing household growing up, you as a, as a, as a girl. Well, I come from um, a rather unique family. Um, I didn't realize it growing up. I thought my parents were kind of staid and old fashioned. I think most young people might think that of their parents of the previous generation. But as I grew into adulthood and I was traveling around the world, I realized that my, my parents were actually pretty radical. <laughs> and to give you an example, when I was three years old, um, actually, no, let me back up a little bit before that. When I was about a year old, my parents adopted um, a, a small baby that was in a um, body cast had been so badly mistreated. Mm. Um, and that brought our family and my, my brother Ian is black and that made our family interracial right off the bat. And I grew up in an interracial family back in the seventies. I see, I just dated myself at the very beginning of your program and our family was already very unique. Um, because of the composition of, of my, my, of my family. Right. Mm -hmm. So when my brother Ian was two and I was three, um, my parents picked up and moved us to Israel. And this was right after the Yom Kippur war. And so I grew up for, well, we lived there for about a year in a little town called Bethany which was in Arabic is called um, um, El Azaria. And it's about two and a half miles outside of Jerusalem. And so I, I have distinct memories. You know, when you're that young, three, yeah, four yeah, years yeah. old, you, I have distinct memories that I've actually questioned my parents about. I said, did this actually happen? Or was, is this, like something that's been put into my head. And they're like, no, that actually happened. <laughs> um, but we, the rooftops are flat in Israel um, because men, most of the houses are not air conditioned. And so the family goes to sleep up on the roof um, in the heat of the summer months. And so we would play up there a lot. Our water tank was up there. Fresh water was collected up on the roof and then was fed via gravity down into the house. And I remember going up to the, there were short, 
uh, low, like curtain walls around the roof, right? And I could go up there and I would scrabble my feet on the bottom and kind of jump up so I could peer over the edge. And the walls were pretty thick. They were about like this, about a foot thick. Mm -hmm. And I could peer up over the edge and I could see the Israeli soldiers patrolling the streets. Because remember, this is just after the- Oh, yeah. So uh, those are some very distinct memories of mine. And uh, when I think, as I became a parent myself, um, and I moved my family to the South Yucatan, as you had mentioned in my bio, I remember thinking, you know what? My parents did this a whole generation prior. And it was even more radical because they moved us to the Middle East, to Israel, right after a war. And it was not like that when I went down to the South Yucatan. And I thought, wow, my, especially when I look at my sweet little, tiny little mama, (laughs) I'm like, wow, mom and dad, you guys rocked. (laughs) You guys were hardcore. That's cool. Um, Yes. Yes. So it made for a very unusual upbringing. Um, My dad taught, of course, my mom stayed at home because we were really little. We were just toddlers, right? We were you know, four and three years old, um, for the most part. Um, and my dad taught English at the, what was called the Christian embassy in Jerusalem. And that's, that's um, pretty neat, you know, because a lot of people never leave the United States and, and, right. you know, and it's cr- amazing how many people think the rest of the world lives like we do. I know it was, think, yeah. Talk about perspective. Talk about a long range perspective for a small child growing up, um, you know, with those kinds of experiences early on, you know, both with the um, interracial makeup of my family and all of that entailed. And then also with living overseas with an interracial family overseas. So I grew up thinking a lot of things were normal and that, you know, a lot of people thought in and perceived the world around them the way that I did. And I realized growing up that, that it was really very different. I had a very unique perspective. No, but that's cool to, you know, thanks for sharing that because it is, it is important. You know, it gives us a baseline, you know, and you know, this is probably so cliche or maybe understated, but, but, but every single thing that we've done in our lives, no matter what, from every age is the building blocks becomes who we are. You know, and those experiences are what separates, you know, gosh, you talk about bi- biblical stuff, the, the wheat from the shaft without passing right. judge, judgment and, and the wheat being the wisdom and the shaft maybe being the, the, the not so much wisdom. So that's important. So you, you came back to the States and you all came back to Texas then after Jerusalem? No, no, I was actually raised thereafter in Wisconsin. Okay. Midwestern cheesehead girl. <laughs> yeah, that, that's where they, the, the the power lines get icicles on them in the wintertime. Cold. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I actually, um, <laughs> my when my parents were very, um, very patriotic. My dad had served in the Navy um, during uh, the Vietnam conflict. Right. Now, he's always very careful to let people know he didn't serve in Vietnam because that is a whole nother um, probably a whole nother scar on a psyche for many who served in Vietnam as we well know nowadays yeah um, but what's interesting is that as a man in uniform during that time frame 
he still endured the same slights and scorn and persecution that many of our military service members did back in that time frame. And my mom, as his very young wife, um, swore that she would raise her children to respect and honor those who had served because she never, ever wanted to see our, our soldiers and service members, Marines, airmen, sailors treated the way my dad was treated and others who had served in that time frame. And so we were raised to, um, to have a very, uh, let me, how do I say this? A very constitutional perspective um, on our politics. And my parents were very much engaged. Um, they were activists from early on. And so I can remember being a young child and fold carefully folding letters and stuffing envelopes and addressing hand addressing envelopes um, to send out for my, my parents' chosen candidates. Um, funny story, my <laughs> youngest baby brother, who's, who's uh, nine years younger than me, grew up thinking that the president of the United States at that time was President Reagan Bush. <laughs> because yeah, when okay. Ronald Reagan was the president, we, all, we only ever heard and saw signs for Reagan Bush, Reagan Bush. And so he grew up thinking that that that's, was the president. That's hilarious. You know, but I'm, but I'm glad you mentioned about the reverence because not, and kudos to your mom for doing that, because that's important, you know, to understand and to be grateful for the, the, the benefits that we have as Americans. And, you know, that was not unlike a lot of the veterans, Vietnam veterans of today and the veterans that came back from Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. So many of the Vietnam veterans out there today, treat those men and women with, with utmost respect, because like, just like your mom, they didn't want to see those younger or newer veterans treated the same way they were. Right. So, you know, that's, that's important, you know, and we talk about patriotism and right now America's getting slammed on so many fronts, but it's really important to be grateful for the things that we have here. Yes. In fact, I would, it's interesting that you mentioned that about the generations of warriors that we have in our society. Um, it wasn't really until after the disastrous uh, withdrawal that we just, it, that just ensued from Afghanistan mm -hmm. that I realized in full, harsh, brutal detail, how our Afghan Afghanistan veterans, Iraq and Afghanistan veterans viewed that whole debacle um, in much of the same um, fury that our Vietnam veterans who had sacrificed so much um, life and limb and and then came out of Vietnam, you know, yanked out of Vietnam and it was considered a police action and they weren't you know, they came home just like, what mm. was all that for? What was all that? Why? Why, why, why? And I know that so many of our um, Iraq and Afghanistan veterans now are making those same, oh, it's such a brutal question. Um, and it's it's leaving such deeper scars uh, for those with PTSI, uh, post-traumatic stress injury. 
And I always call it an injury. I don't like to call it a disorder, by the way, John. I think you and I have had this conversation. We have had that. We have a while talked. back. And I try and teach people that I really believe that the terminology needs to be injury because an injury is something that is inflicted upon you, something that has happened to you, um, something that leaves scars. But the hope is that it can be treated, an injury that can be treated and it can be healed, not drugging, not with drugs and pharmaceuticals. I'm talking about it can be healed. You and I have talked about that. That's a whole nother show. <laughs> no, no, but, but it's true. You know, and it's funny, you, but I'm not funny that you point that out, but even the gold star families that lost a uh, son or a daughter in, in, in those theaters of war have got to just, be, I know one lady who uh, it really shook her up for, um, I mean, it was bad enough to lose your son. But then to have right. that debacle, which is a nice word uh, right. about what happened, you know, I mean, it, it, in a sense, and the Vietnam veteran who I play guitar with said the, the same. He said that after that happened, he even was questioning his service in Vietnam again. You know, I'm telling you later, I'm telling you, it is a generational, uh, you know, I was talking with uh, every year I ride with uh, with um, run for the wall. And it's, I'm usually gone for about five weeks and I'm riding on my motorcycle the entire time, every day. And that run was started by uh, Vietnam era veterans. And I just have such a, mm. oh, such a soft spot, such a, a deep um, regard for our Vietnam veterans. Because when I was a young enlisted and a young officer, my senior NCOs that trained me and led me um, and really trained me in leadership, which I think we're going to get to a little bit later, um, were Vietnam era um, service members. And so, and my dad having served during that era. And so my regard for them goes as, goes as deep as, you know, my relationship with my dad, uh, my mentorship from those senior, senior NCOs when I was being trained. And, um, and so I, I am privileged and honored to sit and listen to their, their experiences. I will always be all ears when I'm talking to one of them, um, respectfully uh, honoring their service and their experiences. And we talked about it a lot on this last run for the wall. And they were just like, we have so much we could share with this current generation. Um, we, we have to reach into this community because we have, we are now sharing a very similar, um, a, a, a very similar sense of, I don't know. I don't want to use despair, um, because that indicates some level of hopelessness. It's not that. It's like it's a just, extreme extreme concern. Oh, you know, I mean, beyond just say yeah. it lightly. Yeah, extreme concern squared. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, there's sometimes there's not even words that can describe that kind of feeling yeah. that you get when you see some of that stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and the stories when we were doing the straight out of combat radio show, it didn't matter if I was interviewing a woman or a man. I mean, their commitment, you know, the mere fact that you would raise your right hand and swear an oath to something greater than yourself 
-hmm. you know, it doesn't, you know, without passing judgment or making one better than the other, but that in and of itself sets those people apart from all the rest. And, you know, you talk, I, I, I don't know. There's just something for me. I get inspired by people that, put something else above themselves first. That That is like the ultimate in unselfishness. And then to have people in leadership positions make decisions that completely usurp that type of mm-hmm. thinking. Yeah. Anyhow, that that's a different show, different conversation. I know. I know. Yeah. I mean, we should come up maybe with another show, but no. So, <laughs> so you're, so Holy. you're, let's get, let's get to, so let's get to college because I want to get to wheelchairs okay. for wars. But so, your family, your mom is very cognizant of constitution and she's not going to allow that type of disrespect for anybody that's worn the uniform take place in any of her kids. And and thank that's God right. for, for your mom. So, so you're, you're raised with and that. my dad yeah, and my dad, quite honestly. And your dad. Was, so he served yeah. and you know, that's something, you know, he's one of those yes. one percenters. Uh, we talk about the one percenter. We actually want right. to change that conversation. We want to change the one percenters to be revered and not somebody or someone mm-hmm. to be looked down upon. But anyhow, so you, you, you're coming along, you're getting into high school, you're getting ready for college. And did you make a decision early on to want to be in the military? What was up with that? I, idea? I did when I was 12. And mm. my parents honestly thought I would grow out of it. I was the firstborn of my family. So I was very goal oriented and, and um, had my life planned out. Um, when I was 12 and um, I was very young. I was very young for my grade because I had skipped a couple of grades in, in school and uh, I was homeschooled for a number of years. That's, I guess that's something else that kind of set my family apart. I was homeschooled for a number of years and a lot of my foundational reading had to do uh, were books by John Locke, Patrick Henry, um, Benjamin Franklin, um, uh, Adam, uh, James Adams, wait, Adams. No, no, John Adams and James Monroe. James. Yes. Um, and so a lot of that reading kind of set the foundation for me. And so I had a goal to work for the, um, national security agency as an, as in an advisory role. And I knew I needed to be, um, posted overseas. I needed to have somewhat of a military perspective and military background. So um, my grandparent, my granddads had served, uh, one had served in World War II in Italy on, in ground forces in the U.S. Army. My other grandfather was Navy CB, um, also in World War II, uh, but then he also was uh, posted as an engineer to uh, re- help rebuild Vietnam. So he and my grandma had actually lived in Vietnam for a number of years. So there was a lot of that influence Um, Mm -hmm. in my family. And then of course, my dad was a sailor in the Navy. So my parents kind of thought I would grow out of this harebrained idea to, to go into the military, but I didn't. And I had actually applied to West Point, um, had gotten a uh, congressional um, appointment from then Congressman Les Aspen of Wisconsin. Um, Again, I'm dating myself. (laughs) No, I mean, it's it's all good. I, I I'm trying to put all the time pieces, you know, together. But yeah, this is back in 1986, and and I was accepted. I actually got a letter of acceptance to West Point and started to go through a lot of the testing and the uh, which is like physical, like the physical uh, PT tests that you had to take, the 
doctor's appointments you had to go through. And it was then that they noticed that I was too young. Um, my parents already had to sign a waiver for me to be 17 years old uh, when I entered uh, um, Beast Barracks at West Point. Um, at that point in time, women had only been allowed into West Point for seven years. So it would have been a, in very early in the history of females uh, allowed to attend West Point. Um, and I realized, or they, they sent me a letter saying, we're going to roll you over into the next class because you're too young. You cannot enter West Point when you're 16. <laughs> you have to be 17 you, by July 1st. Of that would have made history. history. Yeah, that would have made history for sure. So, yeah. Yeah. So that, and that was my senior year. That was the second semester of my senior year. So I really had to scramble. I was determined to go to college. I, I had lived, lived up to that point, a very sheltered, um, in a, in a very sheltered family, um, safe and very loving family. And, um, you know, I'm 16 years old and I'm determined to throw off the shackles of my safe and loving family. <laughs> well, I get it. I mean, I, yeah, I couldn't wait. Well, you know, yeah, yeah I, get I couldn't it. wait to go to college. And so I applied uh, belatedly after the um, um, application windows had already closed to Marquette University and Duke University. And I was accepted to both. Um, but my family was not very well off. Um, we were, um, you know, we were poor, but I didn't know it because we were rich in the things that mattered. I didn't know you know, hand-me-down clothes or my mom made our clothes or whatever. I didn't know that we were poor, yeah. um, but we were rich because we were so rich in other things, experiences and um, family and friends and things like that, things that matter. So I chose to go to the closer school uh, because my, I couldn't actually afford to fly to North Carolina from Wisconsin and Marquette University was only an hour away. So that is where I, that's how I chose my school. And then my very first semester there, I uh, joined, I signed a contract with the government to um, enter in to the U.S. Army as um, E1. And then I had, went to boot yeah. camp and I served in the reserves simultaneously. So I was always doing ROTC drill or um, my reserve drill. I was a very, very busy young, young uh, student at Marquette University. But, but that's separate. I don't know how I still yeah. got in trouble. How did I still get in trouble? I still got in trouble. <laughs> well, you know, you picked the army. That probably says it all. I mean, but that's good. No, so, but, but, but again, you know, I didn't go ROTC. I actually went to college first, graduated, worked in the corporate business for a while. And then went in as an E1 after college and after being oh. a corporate manager, which was really interesting because I was a 27-year-old E3. Uh, they attempted to give me a direct mm. commission, but I didn't want it food service because that was my ah. major in college. I'm like, what am I going to do as a second lieutenant working in a mess hall? I didn't want to do that. Anyhow, yeah. so, so you're a busy girl in college, young college yeah. freshman, and- that's pretty cool, though. You know, you decided then that you wanted to serve your country. And so kudos yep. to you. Thank you. Yep. So when I did get my commission, I was placed, I was given a choice. Now, usually reserve officers don't get active duty. 
Um, but I can, I was considered to have prior service because of the active duty training I had already done as enlisted, plus all of my drills compounded with the ROTC drills. Um, I was always doing something. That's how I got my military science degree. And um, they gave me an option. They said, uh, you can take the branch we give you and go active duty because I was in the top two graduates of my class, or you can take the branch that you want because I had earned it by merit um, and you would remain in the reserves and go on with your, your civilian career. And so of course I wanted the active duty. So I went into um, the AG branch, adjutant general branch. That was the branch that they gave me. And my first assignment was in Karlsruhe, Germany. I was assigned as an assistant S1 to the seventh signal brigade in Karlsruhe, Germany. That's a so nice that's tour, what took so. me overseas. Yeah. Yeah. I was born in Stuttgart, by the way. And, uh, no kidding. My dad was an officer for 28 years. And so okay. I was kind of an army brat type of guy. But so so you're over there in Europe and 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 you've gone through all this military training as an undergraduate and then as a graduate. But, you know, what was the What did you notice in the army when you got there and you were an S1? What were your what was the leadership training like? In the service. Well, I I have to say I had already, of course, completed my officer basic course. I think it's called Bullock now, um, basic officer leadership course. Um, back then, it was called uh, OBC, and had completed that to learn the specific technicalities of my actual branch, um, learning leadership principles in general, and then uh, one of the things that my dad and others had advised me, they said, um, never as a young officer, believe that you know better than your NCOs. And they said, your NCOs will make or break you. And great I, advice. That's good advice. <laughs> I took it to heart because I knew that as I, I already had some perspective as an enlisted um, you know, because they say that a good leader must first be a good follower. And I've, that's one of the things that they had taught us. And so I, I knew I had a, a good perspective already, but I was very blessed when I arrived in Germany that my first sergeants um, in my unit were very knowledgeable and very, um, uh, diligent in teaching me and training me in the way I should go as, as a young officer. And it's not that they were, it's not like they came in and they were like, Oh, she's a butter bar. You know, let's just tell her what to do. I really had a, a spirit of learning and understanding and, um, wanting to be a good leader. And, so I was very fortunate. I had a command sergeant major and a first sergeant that were excellent leaders of men and women. I love, and, I absolutely love that story because I just, I love it because, you know, you can see, you can distinguish the good leaders from, from those that aren't so good. And then the ones that take an interest and like you, you, you talk about butter bars, we used to, they used to come into the unit, right? And I was just an E5, but there was there was a difference. There were the ones like yourself 
that were inquisitive and curious and wanted to learn. And then there's some of those that thought they knew it all. And, and you're right. You're so right. Anybody listening to this, that's, that's a, a young officer uh, should take heed from what your parents said that, or what your dad said that, you know, you can learn a lot from those NCOs a lot. I can tell you that um, in my particular unit, the, the officers did not exhibit the type of leadership that I respected or admired. I, I, now I'm talking about the brass, not the, not the mid-level or lower. Um, there were a lot of captains in our S3 shop that were, uh, that I very highly respected. I'm talking about the upper brass, the full bird colonels and the, the uh, lieutenant colonels the and the, some of the majors, guys, yeah. the field grade guys, right? They yeah. were just, there were, there were some, you know, everybody's kind of got a style. They kind of develop a style, but I really wanted to impress the command sergeant majors. Those were the leaders that I thought, man, if I, as a young butter bar, if I don't, if they don't scorn me, that's, that's the first thing. But if I can impress them, that was the, the, leader those were the leaders that I wanted to impress and that was what I strove for um my top was I I still even to this day when I meet someone that that I can see either their rank somewhere on their patches or something I could see that as even though they're out of the military they still kind of have a way of displaying their rank and I'm like oh my gosh the top top has got I've got such a soft spot in my heart for tops because they really did take me under their wings and um, train me well. I became a very good leader, um, if I do say so myself. But I have to give all—I have to give them credit where credit is due, because um, I was teachable, and I wanted to be—I was very cognizant that I was a the—I was only one. I was one of two females in leadership in this entire brigade. That's awesome. Uh, the, you know, the and, headquarters and, unit. And you know what? You get a top, which is a first sergeant. You get one of those on your side. And uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, I'm not going to say it's a golden ticket, but it can help you out of some situations. And and we'll, I'll share one with you at another time when okay. the first, first sergeant came to my rescue. And then later on, um, anyhow. So, but, but <laughs> those who are listening, um, one thing that Heidi just said, that's important for a leader is, is to be teachable and her sharing that about, you know, her being an officer. And even though she outranked these NCOs, she was, um, well, you heard she, she was open uh, to learning as much as she could. So that's, that's, that's like a good point that we've already got right out of the shoot is be teachable. It was very much about not demanding respect because of my rank, but earning it by merit, earning it because of how I was uh, treating those um, above and below me. And um, so I believe that that respect is earned. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. So, so you had a, you had a good military active duty career. I did. In fact, I was Not at, my yeah, career track. Yeah. And my career track was as a foreign areas officer it was called an FAO. And um, I had taken a little bit of Russian um, and a whole lot of German when I was in college and had every intention of my, 
my career track, I really wanted it to take me into Eastern Europe. Where at, if you remember, back in the late 80s, early 90s, that's where all the action was, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. And so, you, met, you mentioned yeah. Soviet politics. Do you see anything going on today that <laughs> is similar? Oh, I got lots of opinions. We don't have time for no, all No, I we'll, we'll talk off the record <laughs> on that one. But uh, yeah, um, so that's cool. So, but did you make it to Eastern Europe? I mean, what was going, did you get over there? You made it to uh, Europe. No. You, yeah. No, actually, um, I I ended up leaving the service. I had every intention of serving um, a full 20-year career, and I did not. So I ended up leaving the service because I was getting married and uh, to another officer in the, in the Army, and he, we could not get joint domicile as a married couple. Uh, he was going to be sent to Korea. He was finishing his tour in, in uh, Germany. He was going to be sent to Korea, and I was going to remain in Germany. And so um, we ended up both getting out of the service and then getting married uh, within a few days of us getting out of the service. So I wanted to raise my children. Um, I didn't want to hand them off to someone else. And honestly, I was such a committed um, career officer at the time. I was working 14 hour days and happy to do it. So that's not very conducive to raising a family the way that I wanted to raise my children, the way that I was raised with my folks. Well, so. well good for you, Heidi, because, you know, priority like children is, is commendable. And when you can put your children ahead of yourself, then you truly are uh, a proud mother and somebody who, who does yeah. the right thing because there's a lot of parents uh, for whatever reason that pawn their kids off or don't spend the time they need to. And, you know, we're seeing the end result of some of that in, in these times. They, I, I'm happy to say my kids turned out all right. And I, I have three, one is in heaven. That's my memorial tattoo mm -hmm. right there. And uh, my oldest son, Jonathan, um, did go to West Point and he congratulations. Pitched, yeah. He pitched for army baseball. Um, he was recruited uh, to be a pitcher for army baseball. Um, so he was a core athlete there. And then, um, upon his commissioning, he was first a, a Seaburn officer, which is the chemical biological radiological nuclear branch. Now it used to be NBC when we were in, <laughs> <laughs> and then um, um, served also in the military intelligence branch. So he is happily married now. And um, he is, he just got out and he is now in uh, Chicago, working well, good, in Chicago. Good for him. And I'm glad he's safe. So yes, my youngest daughter, my middle son Tanner is um, in heaven. And uh, I look forward to seeing him again someday. So I don't have a whole lot of fear of death. <laughs> oh, sorry and, about that, but but it sounds like a, a certainly a valiant wish and a blessing. So yes, yes, and then my youngest daughter um, is uh, a business owner, and she graduated from business school, and she is uh, living out in NorCal, Northern California. Well, good. Then uh, I, you know, I'm glad that everything with the children has worked out, and and. Yeah. You know, and you, and you know what, what's really cool. And it's, again, it's, it's not blowing smoke, but when you can, when you can raise children in today's day and age 
and they become and they give back. They become a uh, a working member of society. You know that that is probably a great joy for you, but it's so important to the to the to the society itself. And and you know, no. I just I, just mothers and fathers that that take the time. It pays off. And those are the kids that we can be proud of. You know, John, you've actually come up in conversations with my son and I have sent some of your podcasts to him because of your interest in alternative treatments for PTSI and uh, other things like that, that, that you and I have talked about a couple of years ago. Um, And my son is also very interested in that. Um, and, and so I sent him some of the, your really interesting shows on that, that you shared with me a couple of years ago. Well, they saved my life and and they, uh, of course my post-traumatic stress was not from combat. It was a combat of a different different kind. um, Oh, I I do remember my dear. Yes, I do. Yeah. It doesn't, the triggers don't get any better. It just, it, it just changes, mm-hmm. you know, because you learn yeah. the coping skills. But I'd love to talk to your son anytime. And I he could oh. be on straight out of combat radio too, because he I'm sure he deployed. He did not. No. Okay. Well, no. maybe we can get him on there for something else. But anyhow, no, so- it, and it, it's it's his interest because of his because of his compatriots. Yeah. He doesn't suffer from um anything like that, but his heart is very he he truly doesn't believe that that um, the way that some of his compatriots are being treated with um, massive doses of mm. pharmaceuticals, it, it just, ooh, it just, it anger. It, I think it, there is some anger there that, that they are so mis, um, mistreated. Mishandled sh- and mistreated. Right, yeah. right. It, it's not something that's healing them. It's just, numbing them in, in, I guess, in some sense of the word, um, and maybe not even enough. And he's more interested in the healing, the true healing of it. Well, good for him. And and that interest alone makes him, you know, sets, sets him apart in in a good way. So, Um, so life seems to be going pretty good. Tell us about wheelchairs for warriors. And then, uh, (laughs) you know, I know that Crystal and you, my passion, amazing things with that. And, and I want to know about that. And then, then let's get to a few leadership tips and what okay. men or what leaders around the planet, because, you know, we're going through, we're going through some stuff now and mm-hmm. uh, doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to take some intuition and figure it out. But tell us about wheelchairs for warriors and what it's about and what you, you guys have done and, and maybe tell us a success story or two. Oh, oh gosh. That's, oh, golly. Okay. Here I get up on my soapbox. Um, Wheelchairs for Warriors, in a nutshell, what we do is we custom design and build um, enhanced mobility chairs for veterans and first responders that have been injured in the line of duty. We have expanded our programs um, within the last two years to include veterans that have not been injured in the line of duty because, honest to God, John, we could not turn these guys away. I mean, we would, they would have served, but their injuries or the reason that they're in a chair might not be because it might not be service connected. And we couldn't, we just couldn't say no to them. And so we did start a whole secondary program where we 
require very lightly, if at all, used chairs, and then we upfit them. We refurbish them and upfit them so that they fit a recipient that may not have been injured in the line of duty um, and may be in a wheelchair due to other issues. However, our primary program is the is the custom build. Whatever they want, we get them. Whatever they need for their lifestyle, for their activities of choice, we will provide. And the the advantage that we have is the the VA is bound by certain parameters when they are providing a wheelchair to a recipient, um, to one of their patients. Um, they have certain protocols that they have to follow and they can't go above and beyond those. We don't have those restrictions. And so every single one of our recipients has either been um, delayed care uh, through institutionalized care, the VA or workman's comp or what have you, if they're law enforcement, um, or they have been denied care. Uh, we have had a couple of recipients denied uh, wheelchair because they were considered to be terminal and, or bedridden. And their family wanted, desperately wanted to get them out of their beds and take them outside and let them sit in, in the fresh air and under the trees. And um, so they would not be given a, a rehabilitative chair that could support them uh, going outside. And so that's where we, we fill in that gap. If there's a gap between what they can what the VA is providing them. Um, we had another, uh, just a guy locally here to me um, had been assigned a wheelchair from the VA five years ago. Um, after about four years of constant daily use, it broke and he kept repairing it, repairing it, repairing it himself. Eventually it just wouldn't work anymore, but they denied giving him another chair because they're like, we just gave you one. And his wife was like, but that was four years ago. And so they come to us because there is a gap. Um, now, I understand, and John, you know, you, you might even know people. I know I know people that have been served well by the VA. We actually have, um, I have a dear friend who is a Navy corpsman um, who chose for the last few years of his career to serve as an, uh, as an orthopedic surgical technician in the VA because he wanted to spend the last few years before he retired serving his fellow, his fellow veterans. Um, and those guys bring all their heart and soul into their job. Uh, I know he did it. I know uh, that's Russell. Nate did it too. He was an army medic. Um, and both of them are serving in the VA system. And I know that there's a bunch of guys that do that. And, and there are a, plenty of veterans that do get well served and get what they need. Um, and that's that, great. And that's, and that's, and that's kudos. true. Yeah. Kudos because not all the stories are horror stories and no, thank you right. for pointing that out. Right. And, uh, and yet we're not, we don't exist for them. If they are being well served by the VA, great kudos, kudos to whatever their regional VA is. Um, we're there to serve those that are slipping through the cracks that give up, uh, trying to wrangle a failed system um, or they have been delayed or denied. I'll give you another example uh, right off the top of my head. Crystal and I were talking to a, an applicant back in 2020. Um, it was February. So you remember what was just starting to really dawn on the public consciousness was COVID, right? 
Yeah. So we get a call from a young man who said that he had been waiting something like eight months to get an evaluation from the VA for a wheelchair. Eight months is what he had to wait for an appointment. And we were like, yep, we're, we understand that they're understaffed and sometimes they underserve, right? So we understand. Um, but he's like, but they just, because of COVID, they just pushed back my appointment because I was supposed to go in this week. They just pushed it back to April. And we kind of interrupted, jumped the gun a little bit, I might add, and said, oh, well, that's not so bad. I mean, it's a, another two month delay. Mm-hmm from eight months to, you know, 10 months. That's not so bad. We've heard horror stories. He goes, no, ma'am. April of 2021, 14 months later, after he'd already been waiting eight months, and that was just to be evaluated for a wheelchair. That was not to get a wheelchair. That was to be evaluated to even see if the VA would provide him one. Well, we got him a wheelchair within six weeks. No questions asked. So that's well, the kind of delay that I'm talking about. You know, and that's, you know, everybody's got a part to play. And that's an important part because that makes somebody's life better. And You're I got to right. say, yeah, I got to yes. say that, you know, what I, I got, Heidi, lately, I, I look at everything that comes my way nowadays mm-hmm. as a learning experience, whether it's a, a good thing or a bad thing or a good person or a bad person. Yes. I try not to go into funk city or evaluate things in a negative way. And, and of course, this doesn't mean that indiscretions we overlook. But what it means is, is that there, what can I learn out of this? Right. And, and that person that you helped, all that agony that he went through, when you all performed and came through, he probably thought it was worth every minute of it because it led him to you guys. And it led him to that success story. Uh, and well, that's not, I, I just look at it that way anymore. You know, it, it's, there's already enough, so much negativity out there. We, we can add yeah. something positive, which is what you're doing, I guess. In a roundabout way, that's what I'm trying to say. Wheelchairs for warriors. Uh, and you as a communications executive and director of it, those are the stories that, that turn people's hearts and lives around. Yeah. So, Awesome. Well, you know, we realized after a while, John, that we're not just in the business of building wheelchairs. Um, we realized that as we become engaged in their lives, um, mobility is so important to combat their isolation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, many of these guys do have service-connected disabilities. Um, they do have uh sometimes most of the time combat related um trauma right Uh, not just physically but also psychologically and so we realized we're dealing with ptsi we're dealing with tbis uh, traumatic brain injuries many times we're dealing with uh relationship uh traumas because of how changed their life is from what they thought it was going to be I've, I've remind some of our donors sometimes that these guys are still here with us, but in a way they sacrificed a life. They sacrificed the life that they thought that they were going to have, that they had, that they were, that they dreamed of, that they had envisioned 
Um, and many times their family had dreamed of and envisioned. And so sometimes their relationships suffer. A lot of military uh, marriages, you know, the military has a higher rate of divorce. And so we realized early on that we needed to reach out to other nonprofit organizations that provide resources for these other types of trauma so that we can refer our own applicants that are coming to us for a wheelchair. We're not just going to like give them a wheelchair and let them roll off into the sunset. We want, we're invested in them now. We want to see them um, beat some of these conditions that, that they, that are kind of oppressing their lives. Um, We were told by one young Marine, he was only, oh, how old was he? 28. He was 23 when he was, Mm. um, when he was injured um, through exposure to toxins in Iraq and um, ended up not being able to walk. It started attacking his mitochondrial, um, his mitochondria. And he was not able, like his muscles and his, his ligaments and everything was starting to fail. He couldn't walk anymore. Young father, young husband, um, very young man. And his father reached out to us and we ended up getting him mobilized because he was trapped inside of his apartment. Um, The VA couldn't really figure out what was wrong with him. And so they would not let him have a wheelchair. And he told us, he didn't really believe us when we called to let him know that we wanted to serve him in this way. Um, We had such a quick turnaround, but he was very honest when he told Crystal, he's like, he goes, it's a good thing you called me today because he goes, I was going to kill myself tonight. Yeah. You know, I can't glad, even say that without crying. Well, I'm glad you pointed I mean, that out because, you know, one mm-hmm. thing for sure that what's very important for those who are listening is that these organizations like yours are not just get the service or get the product and you're out the door. That integration mm-hmm. and those extra, you don't even want to say add-ons, but those extra things that you do speaks a lot about the leadership in your organization, but about why it's so important to have wheelchairs for warriors because it's not just a wheelchair to somebody that needs one and fill in a crack and you forget about them it's an entire integration program that literally changes and improves the lives of those who you serve that's well yeah i mean do you know i think people can understand after being um forcibly quarantined during the last couple of years, off and on, off and on, people were isolated. And we saw a a spike, right, in um, mental illness. We saw a spike in psychological issues as people started to report that their isolation um, fed a darkness, right? And it just, it was kind of this problem that really came to light after multiple enforced quarantines, right? People felt cut off, they felt isolated. And I think now people understand a little bit more how immobility leads to isolation and isolation leads to um, traumas, mental traumas, psychological traumas. And they're a lot more empathetic now because many of them have experienced that kind of 
isolation themselves. And a lot of our, our young men and women, or I, I shouldn't say young men and women, but we, we serve all conflicts. You know, a, a lot of our guys, we've actually served a World War II veteran. Wow, but, good for you. Uh, heavy concentration of Vietnam era veterans. Um, um, and then, of course, our current day conflicts. But uh, they, they're very... Um, susceptible to believing that they are a burden because of where they find themselves physically now, Um, especially if they are living in a wheelchair, they, they are so used to doing for themselves that it is, it is um, an emotional perspective that they have, that they are a burden upon their family, their spouses, uh, their parents, their children, et cetera. And we don't ever want them to feel like a burden. And so we try and design um, chairs to fit their lifestyle, what it is that they want to do with their lives, especially if they're engaged in sports or if they spend a lot of time outside, um, we cater to that. So. Well, good for you. You know that, you know, thanks for sharing that about wheelchairs for warriors. And yeah. I know that you guys have had some great success stories, you know, sometimes, it's the small things that an organization does that are actually the big things. And what sets, you know, not that anybody's work is poo-pooed, you know, everybody's trying something and trying hard to, to, to fit in and to help where they can, but there are some leadership, you know, we're talking about leadership, but that speaks about the leadership. And, and I, that kind of stuff just inspires me and makes me want to do even, mm-hmm. even more. So Kudos to you and thank you for that. So, you know, so right now we alluded a little bit to it. We can look around, we can flip on any station, we can read any newspaper, any magazine, any radio station, and we can see a lot of entropy taking place, a lot of chaos, a lot of conflict, and there's still lights out there like wheelchairs for warriors. But, you know, you know, the United Nations just a couple of years ago said we entered this new era of, of of conflict where homicides around the globe have spiked and you know we're, we're adding COVID into this and then you've got uh, crimes against children the very youngest in our society oh have mushrooms and then gender-based attacks have gone on you know there's a lot going on that's not seemingly not good and isn't good and I'm I, I believe me personally, is that there's a, there's a huge, huge failure of male leadership that didn't just happen overnight. I think this has been going on for a while. And, and, and that's one reason why we decided to do the show, because I wanted to collaborate with women guests and see if mm. we could discuss solutions, you know, hear your stories and how you overcame things in a man's world, right? We, we grow up with that. But, but to try to find solutions to all of this chaos and conflict and and the things that that do get people down and and make people wonder you know is is do, is it too late where's the hope is do i have faith in anything anymore what's the truth what's it all worth why does it matter and so from a leader yourself who has had some very interesting and challenging um events take place in your life what do you see going on out there with leadership at the global, you know, of course it's, it's a rhetorical question, but, but, you know, how can we improve what we're seeing right now? Cause I know you're all about priorities. What do you, what do you, what do you see taking place with, with global leadership these days? 
that's a big question, John. Um, first of all, I think that there is a, a dearth, a lack of uh, spiritual awareness. I think that some of this goes uh, deep down into our souls, both as men and women. Um, there, there is not an, uh, um, wide enough acknowledgement or, or deeper awareness of, of our own spiritual lives. Okay. So that's first and foremost, even for there to be a spiritual accountability, I believe that deep in my heart. And uh, again, that goes towards answering to something bigger than myself, you know, because if I were to only answer to myself, I believe truly that in any leader, your conscience can become seared. And by seared, I mean, completely uh, immunized from the, the aspects of, or the prodding of right and wrong, um, or even that there is a belief in an absolute right and wrong. And they start operating, leadership in general starts operating in shades of gray, and there's compromises all along the way um, that I think become makes them very, very untrustworthy because then it becomes focused on self-interest and not on the, the greater good, not just for this current generation, but for future generations to come. So I, that to me is an acknowledgement of that. There is a higher accountability. There is a higher truth and that there there should be there ought to be a striving for a higher level of character development um a higher level of i i don't i the word enlightenment is what i'm thinking of in my words in my in my mind right now um but it's basically a higher calling to nobility that like the concept of nobility not monetarily not financially, but character. I love, you know, one... I absolutely love that. You know, I couldn't agree with you more because those are the things that seem lost these days, you know, nobility. Yes. And, uh, and, and authentic courage. And what I love about what you just said, Heidi, is that these compromises that people are making when it's a compromise on the absolute truth, it basically okay. takes us off the straight and narrow, which is the toughest road to hoe sometimes for some people. Right. And, yes, and, sir. And, and, it, and it just, it takes us to a place away from that's something that's beneficial for society. That is, that's tough because when we have societies, you mentioned Soviet, right? But when we have societies that have or seem systematic in their, degradation of spiritual things that are spiritually valued you know we have these generations of people that 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 maybe they don't have a connection to something spiritual maybe they were never given that opportunity you know i don't know i'm, I'm just i'm trying to assimilate what you said and what you said makes right. total sense so here it is without all that gibberish <laughs> when you when you compromise the truth yeah you become a self server rather than a server of the community. 
Right. And, and, and I think when you compromise the truth, you're compromising these, you know, sometimes I I feel like our modern society believes that these words are antiquated, but I, I really truly don't believe they are words like um, character and nobility and honor. You know, honor is very much a, uh, a word that has been part of the warrior culture since time immemorial. And to that, even to speak to that, when, when you mentioned male leadership, um, I see very much a degradation of the masculine. I very much admire and respect and love the masculine, um, mantle or the masculine aura, if you will, because I, I believe that the masculine aura is one that is protective and strong and brave. And, um, and I'm talking about the, the ultimate masculine. Um, that is where, if you go back in history, it's, you know, women and children first. Um, it's the men that, that, uh, that believe that, that is, it's like a strong protective, uh, bent or value, if you will. Not to say that women can't be sheepdogs too. I am one. Um, but I admire that masculine aura of, of, uh, of true masculinity, uh, gentle strength, if you will. And I believe that that has been denigrated, um, in our, in our, so more re- in more recent generations that you don't need to build up women by tearing down men. You don't need to build up and acknowledge the strength of the feminine by tearing down the strength and the gifts of the masculine. I just don't believe that. I believe that together. (laughs) No, no, I, I, you know, you've said a lot of cool things here that make sense. That together we are stronger together. We are better Um, as a society, as a civilization. I believe that we are better um, supporting one another's gifts um, not, not believing that one has to be raised up over the other, but that they're mutually beneficial and that they're mutual, they're, they're built to, to weave together and that we're stronger together. And so, uh, and maybe that's even, um, goes back to my early days in the military when the leaders that I admired were that type of masculine leadership um, because those were the only leaders I had were these types of masculine men. And so I don't denigrate the masculine. Um, I believe that it has been um, chopped up, minced up, (laughs) mixed up. You know, you hear a lot of, of uh, a lot of headlines about toxic masculinity and, um, and I'm not talking about men that cater to their, uh, or women, I, I even hate, hate to gender, gender, genderize it, right? Um, that cater only to their own self-interest, which I believe is a corruption. 
of total total of, corruption you know total corruption of of multiple values mm-hmm. so i'm not talking about them i'm talking about those who um oh gosh i mean you see the images and it wraps like you know a a soldier fully armed battle gear on helmet but cradling a small infant in their arms wrapped up in a blanket and taking it out of harm's way or a, a dog, a puppy, you know, taking it out of harm's way or adopting it into the unit. And, and you see this, you know, I've, I've seen it here in, in uh, when we were going through our flooding here in the Houston area during Harvey and you saw the, the Texas Navy and the Cajun Navy come in and, you know, men carrying women out, keeping them up above the water and carrying them out of, of, above the flooded waters. Um, not because they had to, not because anybody told them they had to, um, but because it was because they could, you know, they could, they could use their strength um, to help and to assist and to save, to rescue. Um, so I, I feel like there's a dearth of, there, there's like our, our society is not valuing that those traits of true masculinity um, in in our leadership and oh gosh our male leaders. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you know. The, yeah, yeah, you know. From the top down, the only word that comes to mind is corruption. I know, and you know, and what, what, you said something that you. You know, I remember like the books that you were, you know, Patrick Henry, and the books that you were raised on. And then it, it reminded me of my childhood and, and, and wanted to consume all of these uh, biographies and autobiographies of all these influential mm-hmm. leaders. You know, I was always fascinated by Joan of Arc and what she did and what got Joan of Arc was the corruption. Not her, yes. but the corruption ended up killing her. And, and so... Yeah. What you point out are these gifts, and these gifts are meant to be celebrated. Not only the male gifts, yes. but the female gifts, and do a For celebration sure. rather than pit each other, each gender against each other. Yes, and, and yes. More confusion, and, and those gifts of courage, and honor, and dignity, and etiquette, and respect, and love, and yeah. compassion, and empathy, and kindness—they're not weaknesses, fellas. Those are the greatest strengths and the truest warriors, male types, are the guys that pull the sword out as the means of last resort. The guy that's developed enough patience to be able to take the barbs and and, and know that when he's nice and gentle and kind, that he is a stronger guy than what the society wants him to believe he isn't. Anyhow, well, we, it gets deep, you know, yeah, it gets deep. It does. But I, I when I think of um, just over history as war, as the warrior mindset has been developed, um, you have to have men capable of great violence to fight back against evil. Evil has no such compunctions um, about uh, taking it easy <laughs> on, yeah. on the on on those that are weaker or more vulnerable, and you have to have men and women that stand in that gap and that are capable of great violence to fight off the um, the depredations of evil. 
And so I don't believe, I believe every warrior that has learned his or her craft well and has become um, a, a weapon has, has formed, have, has formed themselves in the crucible really of, of training and combat to become a weapon. Um, but that is not wielded against the weak or the vulnerable. In fact, that's where the whole term sheepdog comes from, right? And both men and women are sheepdogs. Um, but the sheepdog looks like a wolf and can fight the wolves, but would never turn its fangs onto the sheep itself. The, the sheepdog stands between the wolves preying upon the sheep. And the sheep go about their lives. They, and sometimes the sheep are afraid of the sheepdogs because they don't understand. Um, and the sheep might be afraid of those capable of tearing apart a wolf. But when the wolves come and knocking on the door, they want those sheepdogs. They want them to stand in the gap between the sheep living peacefully, going about their lives, chewing on the grass, running across the hills, and they need the sheepdogs to keep away the coyotes and the wolves. And who, who, uh, who are very crafty. And yeah. Yeah. And there's he, so many parallels, <laughs> so many metaphors here that. Yeah. It's, it's, we're not all over the place. We see these things play out every day. And I am very inspired by the opportunities we have, but also the possibilities. I know we're, we're in an interesting place. I don't think just in America, I think there's a global something going on. And you probably know more about it than I do with your background and in, in governments and things like that. But I, 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 I embrace the future. And I really am looking forward to a day when we build these strong networks, not only strong men, but the yes. strong ladies right along next to us with each understanding their place and what they bring to the table. And those guys that want to knuckle drag and be corrupt and all that, I believe that that is not sustainable and that the good and the light will always overcome those types of habits and those types of people. That's just my own belief. Yeah. I think the leadership um, is today is representative of some shortcomings and failures in um, my generation, your generation and prior um, in allowing and tolerating um, public indecencies and mm. uh, corruptions and uh, and what used to be tolerated is I always call those in government I call politicians um, especially those that have been there for decades and decades I call it organized crime I'm please I'm sorry let me just call it what it is I believe that is organized crime because they are they themselves they they place themselves above the law. And um, when, in fact, they are down in the cesspool, mucking it up with the worst types of criminals. And um, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm just, you know, <laughs> you know, there, there was a movie that I saw that I was in the seventh grade and it was Billy Jack. And I remember mm -hmm. Billy Jack. He was you have to watch the movie, the original okay. Billy Jack. And he had a quote. 
And he said that when the men in power are above the law or break the law or corrupt the law, then there is no law. There is only a fight for survival. Oof. And that isn't that movie, where we find ourselves right now? When you you that it just gives me goosebumps. That's you know I how how I was molded as a young boy. Watch the movie if you get a chance on Netflix or whatever. Billy Jack was a uh, a half breed Native American Vietnam veteran, and he was practicing traditional cultural ways out in the desert. He was coming back to learn about internal strength. And he becomes a, without giving away, becomes a champion of the city and of a school that's trying to teach kids traditional values. And it's about all types of corruption in the city and how they overcome it. And he he was, Billy Jack, when I was in the seventh grade, was my hero. Anyhow, wow. uh, just think about that. Let's, how do people, we've talked about a lot of cool things. How do people find out more information about wheelchairs for warriors, how they oh, can yes, help with, with your, with your mission and then yeah. how they can get in contact if they have more questions. Tell us a little bit about that and then we'll, we'll get ready for the next one. Okay. Um, a heartfelt invitation for folks to join our mission. Um, we have seen uh, with appointments getting pushed back at the VA, we have seen a spike in, need and in applications. And yet because of two years of, you know, pandemic related business cuts, uh, we have seen our donations go down. Um, and so, yes, please, we invite you to join our mission. You can go find more out about us at wheelchairsforwarriors.org. Also on all of our social media, when you start typing in wheelchairs for warriors, three words, um, we will, we should pop up for you pretty soon after you start typing those W's, multiple W's, um, we should pop up. And we invite you to go and you know, check out some of our current recipients, our past recipients, uh, learn more about our mission and how you can get involved. And um, boy, we, we sure do need, we sure do need help. So that would be a, a great assistance to us in, in accomplishing our mission. Awesome. You know, well, there you have from Heidi Hansing. Very honored to have you here today. Wheelchairs for Warriors is changing lives. And we yeah. talk a little bit about the small things, but it's the small things that their leadership does that sets them apart from those other organizations that are still doing good work, but maybe they're not, uh, maybe they're not where they could be. You know, Heidi talked a little bit about teachable, be teachable as leaders. And for you men, especially, Honor your gifts. Honor those gifts that yeah. society oh. has told us are not gifts. Um, again, thanks again, Heidi. It's oh. great to see you. I, I'm I'm glad that you're you're still in the game, and uh, I look forward to our next conversation. John, are you by any chance going to the Military Influencer Conference? I won't be Anna? there this year. I, okay, I, I, there's a couple things going on. You're going to be at that one. Yes, it's in Las and Vegas this year, I think. It is, yeah. and we're both Crystal and I are going, and we're also bringing um, our the president of our board of directors. Who, we're a, an entirely female-led organization, nice. and so the president of our board of directors is the civilian aide to the Secretary of the Army for the Houston-Galveston region. So we're bringing her as well, and um, also one of our contracted staff, and we're going to be there 
Um, very, very excited to reconnect because it's relationships like what we've developed over the years, John, that are so valuable. I'm sitting here looking at your face and I'm like, why have we let so much time go by? When you know, that's the way life is, again. though. You know, we don't you remember at that pod fest how excited everybody yes. was? It was sold out. I mean, Orlando, yes. I think, had like three conventions going on. And then we left Orlando. And then Bam. I think it was that Monday that they closed everything down. That's right. And I, and I think you're right, Heidi. I think everybody went into Funkville, you know, and rightfully so. We, we all became isolated and we really yeah. didn't know what was going on, you know, for a long time. But I'm time. telling you, in this conversation with you, I remember so well some of our early conversations and I'm like, this is why I love talking to John Krotek. <laughs> and, 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 and I say the same thing. And, and you know, you I, ask I just... the coolest questions. We have the coolest conversations and... Well, thank you. I, and, 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 you know, we feed off of each other and that, and that's good. And like with Crystal too, you know, you have a phenomenal partner uh, in I Crystal do. and she is another woman that has a great foundation and a great heart. And uh, you both have a drive to just improve the human condition. And when yeah, I meet yeah. people like y'all, it's nice to know. And I, and I, this is not cliche. It's not blowing smoke. I sleep better at night knowing that there's people like you hiding people like crystal and the others who are in our network doing great things to help make the world a better place. And in today's day and age, we need more leaders, female leaders like yourself who are willing to collaborate with the guys that want to be better, to make things better for all of us. And, 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 and to be the sheep dog with the flak mm -hmm. jackets on and, and, and to help yeah. those who need the help the most. Thank you. Absolutely. Look forward to the next one. Me too. Thank you for listening to another episode of Well. Without you, we don't exist. There is no show. We hope the men who joined us today learned some valuable tips to improve and not be ashamed to use them. Be the change, men. Set the example. Keep going. And for the women leaders out there, keep creating and keep helping us men to become even better men, more effective leaders. Thank you. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and lead. Thank you.